Thanks for joining us today as we're carrying on in our series, Big Butts in the Bible. Now you may wonder, why are we calling it Big Butts in the Bible? Well, the reason behind it is that often within the scriptures we find either a statement, uh, a conclusion, maybe an admonition or an admission of something, and, and it's followed by this word, but. And often what's on the other side of this but is some kind of declaration or action of God on the part of believers. Uh, it, sometimes it is a command for the believer that is in opposition to what came before the but. And these are things that are life transformative. In, in other words, when we follow the but and then the after statement there, it changes us. It, it causes us to move in the direction that is a great deal more like Jesus and a whole, lot, a whole lot less like us. So, if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to First John. Uh, sorry, First Peter, chapter three. First Peter, chapter three, and we're going to start reading with verse thirteen and go up to verse, um, we'll say fifteen. And the the but God part or the but that I want you to hang on to is in the beginning of verse fifteen. I'll highlight it for you when we get there. First uh, Peter chapter three. If you don't know where First Peter is in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. You just go ahead and use it. All right. First Peter chapter three, uh, starting with verse thirteen. Here's what it says: Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And then here's that but part. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, that we will internalize the truths that are here, that we would see the um, action that you're calling us into that's in opposition to what came before this but. Lord, that we would have our eyes open, our hearts open, and our spirits open to receive from you today. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so um, this particular message, uh, we're just going to have to dive right into it because there's a lot of content here. So if we start over, if you turn back and you, and you look at verse 8, starting with verse 8, what we find here is a list of commands uh, from Peter. This is the disciple whom uh, was Jesus' right-hand guy. He was the one who actually denied Jesus on three different occasions. And, and then Jesus restores him uh, back into ministry, and he becomes a leader amongst the rest of the disciples. So here's this guy. He writes to the church, he writes to other believers, and he commands a disposition that believers are to have uh, and, and what should actually characterize the believers. And so when you look at verse 8, verse 8 says, Finally, so this is the last instruction that he's giving in this particular letter. And so when he says, finally, uh, it could be replaced with words like, therefore, um, or lastly, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's sort of that last instruction. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And so there's these five virtues that are found within what you would say would be found within Christian love. 
Again, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And so he summarizes his teaching on our demeanor for all the recipients of the letter. So everyone who hears it, everyone who receives this, this is his call to action, you could say, in terms of an expression of our love. And so everyone is fault to follow, uh, warned to follow these instructions. So Peter summarizes his teaching on the demeanor that all believers are to have. And, and in summarizing them, like when these things are followed, when followed, this warning will develop the ideal Christian. And if demonstrated amongst believers, it also demonstrates the ideal church. Now, look, think about it. Imagine every single believer that you know being like-minded. We're going to walk this forward. Being like-minded, being sympathetic, loving one another, being compassionate, being humble. Uh, imagine that being the character of believers and the character of the church. And so the first thing that we find here is that they're to be like-minded. And this literally is the idea of understanding together towards a certain movement. It's not the idea that everyone has to think identically. It's the idea that everyone is on the same train moving in the same direction. They are like-minded of one purpose, of one intention. And so they're pursuing the same goals. The Greek text is to be literally like-minded with one another. And it, again, it indicates this unity of mind. It doesn't mean uniformity, right? It doesn't mean that we're all going to be identical to each other. It does mean, though, cooperation in amidst diversity. So here's kind of what it means. I'm wired a certain way. There's certain things that I get passionate about and certain things that you get passionate about, and they're not always the same thing. There are certain things that I appreciate higher than other things, and the same thing is true of you. And when we work together, sometimes what we're gonna find is that those things that we're either passionate about or interested in or have preferences towards are gonna to conflict with each other. And in this idea to be like-minded, to have this unity of mind, unity of intention and purpose, is this idea that these things that would typically rub each other maybe the wrong way because we don't land on the same page with them uh, are the things that are to be kind of left aside and the things that we dive into are the things that are of Jesus. And so the things like um, the Great Commission. And so, okay, so we're like-minded within the Great Commission, right? Like we're to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Uh, so we do that, and that's the like-minded thing, right? That we are to love one another as Jesus loved us. We're to be like-minded in that. You know, so there's this call that says, you're not exactly the same as each other, but you are to display and work within the love towards each other and towards the obedience to Jesus that we're to have together. Does that make sense? So we're like-minded of similar intention. And God has given his people a variety of gifts, talents, backgrounds, personalities, differences of opinion that exist. That even though opinions are different, the members of the body are expected to work together in unity. And so we, um, we are not to, uh, we are to be governed by the purpose of Jesus so that the differences don't divide, but rather they enrich us as a church. The differing gifts bless each other. Christians may differ on how things are to be done, but they got to agree on why they're done, right? And so then there's this idea of being like-minded. The other thing that he lists here is this idea that, um, that the evidence of our love is, is that our love is to be sympathetic. And this is the idea that we are going to feel for and with uh, others. 
We're going to sympathize with them. The needs of others, being responsive to the needs of others. Our old or our English word for sympathy actually comes from the Greek word that we find here. And so we've got to have this mutual interest in both the joys and the trials of others. Romans 12, 15, do not look only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. So every Sunday in our worship gatherings, um, any collective meeting of believers that you may experience, <clears throat> we have people who are hurting and are in need of sympathy. And so the ministry of reaching out in love to people has to be a part of who we are as a church family. It just has to be. we got to look across the room and, and be willing to recognize that somebody else is struggling with something and to be able to sympathize with them. Now, maybe that's the basis to begin a relationship. Say, man, I heard you're having a hard time. I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. Like maybe it's the beginning of the basis of some kind of relationship. Other times, it's people that are important to us, that we're in uh, the spheres of influence of, that we're able to then engage. But there are some people who fall through the cracks. And I think this is why things like small groups are so important. They provide an atmosphere of love and trust that encourages us to share the personal needs of each other, right? Look, we're to bear each other's burdens. We're to help carry one another's burdens according to Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Now, now think, consider that. <clears throat> we are a people who are designed for relationship. Now, we all have varying needs in terms of the amount of relationships we're able to carry uh, and, and have preference for. But we are all designed for relationship. And very often I hear people say that they don't feel connected uh, in their church and whatever congregation they're a part of. And so this is where we identify something that's incredibly important there. What they're ultimately saying is, is that their need for connection and relationship isn't being met. Now, that may be because there's not an opportunity for them in that particular congregation, but it also may be that if this is, a, if this is you, that there is this, there's a desire for a relationship, but maybe a little bit of a fear for taking the risk to have that relationship. Some people are afraid to enter into a small group, and I don't mean afraid like they have this phobia. It's not like being afraid of heights, but it's this idea of, Man, if I put myself out there, I'm risking something. And some people have an aversion to that. And yet at the same time, have this need to be able to connect. Well, let me be an, try to be an encourager to you in this. If you are out there and you have needs in your life that are currently being unmet, that need to be met by other people around you, get into a small group. Maybe it's a small group of friends that you already have. Maybe it's people at work but most importantly, people in your congregation because you're already moving in a similar direction. And, and, and get into that small group so that you can help carry others' burdens as they carry yours. And so it's this reciprocal thing that's taking place, but, but connect. <clears throat> that way we're able to sympathize with each other a little bit more strongly and carry one another's burdens. Third thing here he says is that we're to have a genuine love for other believers or the brethren is, is how it says it here. Now, this is a, re it's a repeated statement from chapter 1, verse 27. Christian love is seeing and treating each other as brothers and sisters in faith. Now, now, admittedly, some people come from a very dysfunctional family, and so the idea of treating people as brothers or sisters may not have a very healthy context. 
But, but let me encourage you in this way, that there is this genuine desire for the good of the other in the context of the brother and sister in faith. You want to see them grow. You want to see them flourish. You want to see them gain everything that God has for them in this life. That's that genuine love that we're to have towards brothers and sisters of faith. And so whatever differences we have, the lack of love for one another should not be one of them. You know, whatever differences in the world, but lacking love for one another should not be one of them. We're to press in towards that loving relationship with each other. John 13, 34, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. I mean, there's a litany of passages that could offer you where there is this repetition of what it means to be people of love within the family of faith. If we love Jesus and are becoming one with him, the byproduct is a love for other believers. And so <clears throat> if you're finding that you're struggling loving other believers, press into your relationship with Jesus because it fosters a love for others. Fourth thing would be this, that we are to have this compassion towards others. It's, it's the idea of a tender heartedness. That's to be soft to each other, not hard on each other. It indicates being affectionately sensitive and caring towards others. And, and this is not something that would have been esteemed very highly in the Roman culture in, in the day. And as a matter of fact, I would suggest to you that in the same way that it wasn't overly appreciated in the Roman era, it's overly appreciated in ours. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> On one hand, we're flooded with so much bad news that it's easy for us to become insulated and unfeeling, right? Like it's just, we hear about it, we hear about it, and we just kind of want to shut it off, put it away, and so we come across as unfeeling. But in the same way, our society wants us to be so compassionate that we would disregard biblical truth in favor of that compassion. Both of these extremes are wrong. We are not to lack compassion for each other in the sense that we become desensitized to the struggles of other people. At the same time, we're not to be overly compassionate towards other people to the extent that biblical truth becomes subordinate to compassion instead of compassion subordinate to biblical truth. It matters. Our hearts need to be broken with the things that break the heart of Jesus. And we need to cultivate a tender heart that can be moved by the suffering which another person is enduring. And we're to have just a soft-heartedness towards others. And sometimes that can be difficult. We live in a very individualistic society, right? Where we're to focus on ourselves and, and, and we're to make sure that we're doing well and that we're getting all the success and achievement and these kinds of things that we want. It's a very egocentric world that we live in. And yet the Bible says that we're in it, not of it, in terms of in the world, not of the world, and we are to live differently. And in that living differently, we have a heart of compassion towards each other. We're softened in our hearts towards one another. And, and I think in doing so, it gives us the ability to be able to walk with those who are struggling in a way that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do apart from our faith. And then lastly, it would be this, that we are to cultivate within, our, within us this humility, this humble spirit. Understanding our fallenness is the idea here. Like the, the humble spirit is the person who understands that apart from Jesus, we got nothing. And it's not a harsh thing to say. It's not, it's not a, <clears throat> this isn't intended to be that brutally blunt, honest, harsh word. It's literally the idea that as I look at my relationship with Jesus, 
at the end of the day, what do I have without him? If Jesus wouldn't have done what he did, where would I be? That's the idea. It's the idea of recognizing who we are as we stand before a holy God who did such an incredibly loving act towards us. It's this humility that kicks in. The humble person can put others ahead of themselves. Humility is a virtue that Jesus taught when he washed his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. And Jesus is willing to be a servant of all. And so those believers with these five qualities assist the church in becoming all that God intends it to be. Pretty good, right? I mean, this is a summary of what uh, Peter says. This is kind of the baseline of how we are to function from. This is the foundational principles of Christian living that we're to have within our lives. And so to develop these qualities, I think it's important for us to note that these were not natural things for Peter. Peter was no different than us. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> Peter, in his early days with Jesus, he was loud, he was aggressive, he was strong-willed. We read that in Mark 8, 31 to 33, John 13, 6 to 9. The Holy Spirit got a hold of Peter, and Peter was changed, molding his strong personality as God taught him compassion and love and tenderness and humility. And he can do the same for anybody else who will free themselves up towards him, will submit themselves to him. And then he uses this as a baseline to kind of walk us forward into what it means to be people who will suffer in this world, who will struggle in this world. Verse 9 is a, is a pretty powerful passage. When you look at verse 9, he actually says here, uh, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Right? That, so do not, in, do not give evil for evil, insult for insult. Like don't, don't do these things. But instead, our response to evil is supposed to be that we offer a blessing. That is life-changing just right there. Because that's not our natural disposition, right? Like that's not how we typically want to live life or think about living life. And so it gives the impression here in this particular passage that even in the face of evil and insults, believers are to respond differently as a set-apart people. Right? It's, it's almost as if the, the notion at the time was if someone insults you, it's, you, you can feel free to insult them back. If they do evil to you, you can do evil to them. That, that seems to be the notion of the, the context that people are coming out of. And then Peter just jumps into that and says, hey, listen, you know what? Uh, that may be what you were used to. That may be the way that the world around us functions, but that is not the way the kingdom of God works. And so do not repay evil for evil, insult for insult. And instead, when you receive evil, offer a blessing. That's a dramatic thing. Like it's a life-changing concept. We're to offer a blessing in response to evil. It actually takes me back to Jesus' words because I, I truly believe that Peter's not teaching us anything here that Jesus didn't already teach. And so when you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 40, tell me if this rings true in terms of what it sounds like Peter's saying here. And this is Jesus talking. Uh, he says, You have heard it said, eye for an eye, Tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 
Or Luke chapter 6, verse 28 to 31, which is talking about the similar uh, scenario here in terms of the encounter where Jesus was talking. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, listen, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Like there's a language here of what it means to be a people who have evil done to them and what our response then needs to be to these people. And if you look at Jesus' words, he, he's, he's like, look, someone slaps you in the face, give them the other side. Somebody wants your coat, give them your jacket, give them your shirt. If somebody else wants something for you, if they take something that belongs to you, don't ask for it back. Don't demand it back. Like there's a language here that is foreign to us. This is not how we function. This is not how we live life. And, and so when we have this idea of evil being done to us, we offer them a blessing. What Jesus says in verse 31 from Luke chapter 6 is that we are to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Now, now <clears throat> there's a flip side to this. My son cracked me up when he did this. He was really young. And I think he might have been like maybe eight or nine years old. And there was a guy that was bullying in school. And, and so Theron decides that he's just going to go and, and, and take this guy down. So Theron takes this guy down. And so we're having this conversation about it. I'm like, well, what are you doing here? We're like, what's going on here? And he goes, well, it's simple. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So this guy clearly wanted me to hurt him. <laughs> I'm like, oh, kid, you are my son. Uh, <laughs> you know, like there's a twisted way to look at this passage. But the real way to look at this passage is that if you were the one who did evil to somebody, how would you want them to respond? Regardless of the reason that you had for doing the evil, how would you want them to respond? And, and, and Jesus here is saying that our response to people who do evil to us is not to repay evil for evil, but to, think about it, repay evil with a blessing. And this is what Peter is talking about when he says that we're to offer a blessing in response to evil. You want to talk about being uncomfortable? That's ridiculously uncomfortable. And Peter is not the only one who talks about it. Jesus is not the only one who talks about it. As a matter of fact, Jesus offers it to us. And then we see Peter talking about it. And we see Paul talking about it. Paul talks about it um, when he actually quotes Proverbs. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 and 21, he says this. Tell me if this sounds familiar already. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and this is where he quotes Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him some to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow. Is that what you're like when someone cuts you off on the street? You've heard me say before that I can't stand parking lots, that I actually, you know, I jokingly say that hell is going to be a giant parking lot where everyone has right away. Because I find them so frustrating. 
What are my thought processes? Let's say even in just that simple arena. When someone does something that I don't appreciate or they're, um, they cut me off or like, what is my response? Am I repaying evil for evil? Like, am I, am I flipping them off? Am I yelling in my vehicle and thinking it's okay because nobody else is around in the vehicle to hear me? Even though they can probably make out what I'm saying by reading my mouth, my lips. Proverbs 25, 21, 22. This is the proverb that Paul was quoting. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals in his head, and the Lord will reward you. This idea of heaping coals on a person's head is that when they do evil to you, you do good to them, they won't be able to get it out of their minds. It's just, it burns within them because they're trying to figure out why did you do what you did? It is this notion of not being able to avoid responding in some way, evaluating in some way how you responded to them, heaping coals on their head. We are to be a blessing to those who do evil to us. Like, stop there for a second. Like, pause this if you need to. And ask yourself, are you a blessing to those who do evil to you? That is not the world we live in. Even within our Christianity, we give ourselves all kinds of license to do evil to those people who do evil to us. And time and time again we hear this. It's in Proverbs, it's in Matthew, it's in Luke, it's in Peter's, uh, it's in Romans that we are not to repay evil for evil, but instead to do good. Instead to do good. This is life-changing. It's absolutely life-changing. This is what it, part of what it means to be counterculture because our culture isn't like this. Christian culture is to be just like this. And so as we carry on forward, we look at verses 10 through 12, and this is actually another quoting of Scripture. This is quoting Psalm 34, verse 12 to 16. And in the previous two verses, Peter has just called on Christians to both live in harmony together, to refuse seeking revenge, even when insulted or treated with some sense of evilness, because it's just simply not an acceptable option for the believer to do otherwise. And so we are to give blessing in exchange for evil treatment. In verses 10 through 12, Peter just kind of doubles down on it. And in quoting Psalm 34, 12 through 16, which are David's words from the Old Testament, they actually still hold true. Those who want to love life and see good days should make some very specific choices about how they are to live today. If we're to actually just go back and read that, it says, whoever would love life and see good days, right? So if you're a person who would want to love life, or if you want to experience loving your life and seeing good days, the rest of this kind of tells you what needs to accompany that. And these are general principles. It's not a promise, but this is how life tends to go if this is your direction. It says this, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. How are we talking? What are the things we're saying? What words are we using to describe things? What intention behind our lung, our, our words, our tongues? They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Hmm. So if we would love life and see good days, smarten up with how we talk and the kinds of things we talk about. Seek peace and not just seek it, but actually chase it. Chase peace. Don't be a peacekeeper, be a peacemaker, right? Like we, we chase the idea of creating peace. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So don't do evil. That's ultimately what it comes down to here, right? Don't do evil. And we carry on. <clears throat> and, and when we consider this whole thing, right, like that we are to be a people, uh, when, when we're looking at things like the Psalms or any of these other passages that are challenging how we live out life and moving us in a different direction, what we find here is that David is actually making a wisdom statement, a general principle. His claim was that making these choices tends to lead to better ways of living life and better outcomes in life. Peter affirms David's statement in the context of his own train of thought. Christians who live this way will make the most of this life and receive a reward in the life to come. That's it. It's pretty straightforward. So it's all about what we as Christians refuse to do, but also what we emphasize doing, what we insist on doing. Peter probably actually means the idea here of refusing to speak evil or deceptive words or deceitful words in response to people who speak evil or deceptive words to us, right? And so he says, do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. And so he's talking about the idea that we just don't get back at people in these ways, that rather we be a blessing. Now, it carries on, and this is where we get to the but part, right? So there's a, there's a way that we're to respond to these things in life, the evil and insults that come our way that, that he talks about. And so verses 14 and 15, what we find is actually he quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. And in quoting Isaiah 12, 8 to 13, here's what he says. He says, do not call a conspiracy everything these people call a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread what they dread, right? They do not dread it. So this is the part that he's talking about here in terms of not being afraid of things. The Lord Almighty is the one who you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now, that's a statement within Scripture that we can park on for hours and hours and hours. What does it mean to be a people who love Jesus, who are loved by Jesus, and yet at the same time, we dread some things along with Jesus. That, that's a complicated topic that I think would be good for another day. But here, Peter actually substitutes Jesus' name where the prophet writes um, that we are, where he writes the Lord Almighty, Jesus is actually inserted there by Peter. He's the Lord of hosts, and that's a change in this language, and, and it would be nothing less than blasphemous for Peter to have done this if Jesus was not in fact God. And so we are to revere him, the apostle says, meaning that we're to regard him as most holy. We are to have him set apart within our lives, that we are to serve him with reverence and godly fear, so we will not be afraid of their terror, the ones who do evil and insult. This holy fear of God will lift us above the fear of man. And so he says, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. In other words, don't worry about everybody else. 
Don't think about what they can or cannot do to you, but the one that you are to fear ultimately is the Lord, both in sense of reverence. And if you want to talk about who can do the most damage to you, it's God. And so then we are not to fear the things of this world, but we are to be in line with him. And Peter actually adds to this. It's not to just revere him. It is to revere him, to sanctify him in our hearts. And that whole idea behind that is that we are to, it, the, the notion of sanctify is to set apart as holy. And so we set him apart as holy in our hearts. And the idea of our hearts is, is that it, it comes from the depths of the uh, absolute internal part of our being. And it's, it's kind of the idea that Jesus was referring to when he starts off the Lord's Prayer. Where he says, like, like he hallows the name of God, right? Like, so our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. And it's this idea of revering God. And, and so it's got to be inward. It's got to be spiritual. It's got to be our most inward being. First Peter 3, 15 to 17, right? But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And so in this one, it's this idea of, we don't respond to people in terms of the hope that we have in Jesus by, well, you know, I, I feel like Jesus is like this. No, the, the language here is actually of, of a rational thought. Like the reason that you have this hope in Jesus is because of some evidence with Jesus. This is why Paul in, in Romans says that apart from the resurrection, like if the resurrection didn't happen, then we are without hope. And so he anchors everything within the Christian faith to the reality of the resurrection as the evidence of the, uh, of the hope that we then have. That we are to be a people who have reason within our hope, but then even in doing so, that we don't come across as arrogant, and we don't come across as belittling, and we don't come across as harsh with people, that we are gentle and respectful in our approach. I actually think this is why Billy Graham was so appreciated by such a large number of people who were not even in the Christian community. I mean, there could be no doubt that Billy Graham had no trouble calling sin sin. And it could also be no doubt that Billy Graham was unwavering on his understanding of what the gospel message was and where he placed his hope. And yet at the same time, he came across, even though he was able to speak with just this, um, this powerful boldness, he was able to have conversations with people where it was gentle and respectful. So this is how we are to be. We're to have a rational belief system, a rational faith, that is expressed in both gentleness and respect. And then on top of that, right, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. In other words, we don't repay evil for evil. We do not repay insult for insult. We bless people instead. And then when we give reason for the hope that we have, we have such a clear conscience about our conduct that even the people who are accusing us will be forced to kind of be ashamed of what they're accusing us of because it doesn't match. And then it says, for it is better, listen, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And so the idea of suffering in our world is this idea that we're going to have evil come our way, but we're to revere Christ as Lord in our lives. And in doing so, 
We're going to prepare ourselves to give reason for the hope that we have in gentleness and respect. And we're going to make sure that our conduct matches that so that when people do accuse us, that they're going to be ashamed of their own things, that we're going to, we're going to respond to evil by blessing people in the way that Jesus talked about, in the way that Paul talked about, in the way that um, Solomon talked about back in Proverbs, in the way that Paul, or sorry, Peter talks about here. So he says, it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. Look, if you suffer for doing evil, you're getting what you deserve. If you suffer for doing good, it is better. And here's why. Because it actually takes us back to John chapter 15, verse 20. John chapter 15, verse 20 uh, is a reflection of verse 18. Here's why it's better to do, um, to suffer for doing good rather than, for, of course, for doing evil. In verse 18, it says, for Christ, right? So, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. And so what we're saying here is that Jesus ultimately, right? Like Jesus did ultimate good and evil happened to him and it was better for him to suffer for what doing what was good than doing what would be evil. And so it, what he's saying here is that, listen, when you suffer for doing what is good, you're being like Jesus. This is what he's saying. We're being like Jesus. And so verse 18, it takes us back to John 15, 20, where we learn that the serpent is not greater than the master. Here's what it says. Remember what I told you. Jesus is talking here. And he says, a servant is not greater than his master. And then listen, you ready? You're going to love this. It's great. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. You catch that? So this idea of suffering for doing what is good, if it is God's will, then it's better to do that. Why? Because we're more like Jesus when we do so. So when we receive insults, when we receive evil coming our way, and we respond to it in a blessing, what we're doing is patterning Jesus. Jesus received all kinds of evil, and his response to it was to bless. And we're being more like Jesus when we do so. And he actually says, listen, you're not greater than me. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. And then he adds on to this. So here's the encouragement that gets added on to it. But before we get to that encouragement added on, let's bear this in mind. Time and time again, we talk about what it means to be more and more like Jesus. This is going to be one of those harder parts. Because to be more like Jesus in this area, to be more like Jesus when people do evil against you, to be more like Jesus when people insult you, is to bless them. So when people do evil to you, when they insult you, when they speak badly about you, do you bless them? Or do you become like them? Do you do evil in return? And doing evil in return can look like bitterness, can look like unforgiveness, can look like, um, in fact, actually just insulting back or doing something evil back in return, right? And being able to justify ourselves in doing so by saying things like, well, uh, they did this to me, so it gave me the rights to do this to them, right? And so we free ourselves up to be different than Jesus. When Jesus says, look, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. A servant is not greater than his master. When people do evil, when people insult, we bless. This is what we do. And Paul says that we heap uh, hot coals on their heads in doing so, right? Like we cause them to, to kind of be ashamed of what they've done to us in that basis. 
And then he says this, and this is, I think, an, an encouragement. If they obeyed my teachings, they will obey yours also. Why? Because their teaching is Jesus' teaching. And so people who uh, persecuted him, like he was persecuted, so then the disciples, we will be persecuted. But in the same way, people who listen to his teaching will listen to ours because our teaching is his teaching. Right? Like we only teach the things that Jesus teaches throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And so there's this double-edged thing, right? Where we're, to, we're not to repay evil for evil. We're to bless those who do evil against us because that's what Jesus did. And then in the same way, people who will follow the teaching, right? Because always give reason for, always be prepared to answer anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And so anyone who listens to that because it's based on Jesus, if they receive Jesus, they'll receive us. This is not a simple thing, is it? Like, I want to be more like Jesus, but I will confess to you that sometimes when people do evil things to me, I don't have good thoughts. I don't. And I'm not going to stand here and present something to you that is untrue. So I find myself in the moment when someone has frustrated me to the point where they've done evil towards me and I feel like doing evil towards them, I have to take a pause, a moment to say, listen, who do I want to be here? Do I want to be uh, what comes out of my sinful heart? Or do I want to be more like Jesus? And to be more like Jesus is to be a blessing to the person who does evil against you. So if they take your coat, give me your shirt. If they steal from you, keep it. Don't demand it back, he says. Like this is the language of it. If, if your enemy, right? Because your enemies for a reason, right? And so if it is a person who you absolutely just cannot bear with and they're hungry, you feed them. You don't say, well, you deserve that. If they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. Does that take you back to that Matthew passage where he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison... You visited me, right? So even that, when someone takes something from you, it seems unlawful. So, because it is, they go to prison for it. Sense to reason that when they're in prison, we would visit. It is a completely different way of living. And it's a high bar, and it's challenging, and I personally fail at it on a regular basis, but I don't want to, and I don't believe you do either. Paul is calling us to a different way of being. And he wouldn't call us to it if through the power of the Holy Spirit working out in our lives, we wouldn't be able to get there. So let's get there. Let us not repay evil for evil. Let us not repay insult for insult. Let us be a blessing. And instead of the evil and all that kind of stuff, we will revere Jesus in our hearts. And then in doing so, we'll be able to be that blessing to others. Why? Because the servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted him, they'll persecute us. And if we understand that going in, it sets a different kind of expectation. And it's a better way to live. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that um, as people continue wrestling with this topic of what it means to bless those who do evil against us, uh, Lord, to, to be a people who will control um, our tongues and, and how we speak so that we're not repaying insult for insult. Lord, that we would be a people who would revere you in our hearts and in doing so, Lord, be submissive to you 
so that we can live like you. May we be a people who recognize that in this world we're going to have trouble, but you've overcome it. Would you help us to be people who live in it and not become of it? In your name I pray. Amen.